Welcome everybody to Downstream Episode Zero. I'm Jason Snell. This is a podcast where I discuss the latest developments in the world of streaming media with Julia Alexander from Parrot Analytics. Julia, hello and welcome to Episode Zero. I love Episode Zero. I'm hyped for Episode Zero. Yeah, I mean, nowhere to go but up from Episode Zero. <laughs> Um, to just explain what's going on. So this is going to be a podcast. It's going to be every other week on Wednesdays, more or less, unless we have scheduling things, but every other week um, starting October 6th. And it'll be in this feed that hopefully you're listening to this in right now. And uh, we're going to be talking about 21st century media, uh, the the streaming wars, if you want to call it that, all of the kind of interesting developments that go on as we navigate a world where uh, we're questioning whether movies are going to be in theaters and for how long. And, and you know, there's all this new um, TV and film material that's being fought over by tech giants and entertainment giants. And it's the, the whole thing. People are cutting the cord. Like, there's so much going on in uh, modern streaming media. And we're going to talk about it. And what's good about this is that, Julia, it is your job, basically, to think about this whole thing which uh, it, it's going to be helpful because we need some thoughts about this. It's what uh, they and they being the streaming overlords pay the giant checks for. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I, um, for anyone who doesn't know, I will get into this in future episodes with Jason, but I spent a lot of years reporting on streaming and now I work at a company that effectively examines what this new world means for all these different companies. And so I think about streaming 24 seven, basically. Yeah, that's right. Every time you finish a thought, it just says, uh, like, I'm going to autoplay a new thought in three, two, (laughs) one. I see what I did there. Uh, Julia is moving, by the way. So she's in a closet for this episode. Um, Literally in a dark closet surrounded by bounty rolls. It's episode zero. I think it's almost fitting that the lights aren't entirely on on the podcast yet. So this is episode zero. Um, You mentioned, so you you wrote at, uh, I don't remember where I saw you first, but I know you wrote at The Verge and Polygon. Where else uh, Where else have you written before you took your current job? Yeah, and then I was at IGN for a little bit and writing over there and um, spent a lot of time just talking to executives and strategists and talent about everything shifting and whether movie theaters will be a thing in 10 years. Spoiler alert, they will. Uh, yeah. Whether or not streaming was here to stay, spoiler alert, it is. Um, and now I get to be in those conversations and say, how do, what does this look like from your end? And and what does that imply? And I get to talk to you about it and kind of figure out what does this mean for us at home? Me, an NFL fan who wants to watch a game, but NBC is having issues. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. TV. There's so much. So, uh, absolutely. And and now you have access to uh, your employer Parrot's research, and then you write up reports and you have insights. And I think that this is going to be an opportunity for us to have uh, bigger conversations about sort of what you're seeing in this space. I used to do, for my background, I mean, people who are listening to this, if they, if they know that I do a million podcasts, but very specifically for this, I used to do a podcast with Tim Goodman, who was the chief TV critic at The Hollywood Reporter for many years. And it was called TV Talk Machine. And it started as really a vehicle to talk about Tim's reviews of TV shows, but it was very clear very early on that uh, Tim and I were also fascinated by the stuff that Downstream is going to be about, about the streaming wars, about how uh, the nature, very nature of television and film is changing and how it's art and commerce and sometimes art wins, most of the time commerce wins, and what that means for people out there who are 
consumers of this stuff because there is this classic sort of like you said, is the football game not going to be on because of a carriage dispute between NBC Universal and uh, YouTube TV? That's happening this week. But there's always just there's so much of this kind of kind of thing. And so when Tim left The Hollywood Reporter and decided to sort of leave the TV critic business behind and uh, he's got he got a development deal, he's writing scripts that maybe will be a TV show someday. Maybe they won't. Who knows? But uh, he he made an exit from that. And so I've been talking about it sort of on and off on Upgrade every week with Mike Hurley. But I, I felt like there was a, a good uh, a good place for a podcast to talk about this sort of thing. And then, Julia, you and I talked on, you guessed it on Upgrade uh, a few months ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that went great, and it was really one of those moments of maybe this should be maybe this should be a podcast, and now here we are, which is very exciting. I love when maybe this should be a podcast becomes an actual podcast. Yeah, it happens way too often in my life, and it, <laughs> I may have a problem, but uh, this one was something that I've been thinking about since TV Talk Machine ended, especially that I wanted to find a way to talk about this stuff a little more. Uh, broadly and a little and a little more deeply than the uh, segments that we'll keep doing on Upgrade, but they're they're going to be they're a little more Apple TV focused because that's a podcast about tech and about Apple. And this is we're going to try to cast as broad a net as possible. I can't guarantee that we won't have opinions about TV shows and movies, though. That might happen, like because we have them. We clearly have them. Yeah, it'll definitely happen. We'll try to keep it to a minimum, but if it's a podcast about the business and the the commerce and the art world of streaming and movies and and TV shows, eventually we're going to have an opinion about an episode of Ted Lasso. It's going to happen, right? There's going to be an opinion about a movie that gets a simultaneous release in theaters and and on streaming, and we're going to kind of diverge and say, oh, I saw that movie. It wasn't very good or whatever it is, and and that'll happen too. But But yeah, absolutely, this is about sort of uh, the the interesting places that the world of uh, streaming media is going. Uh, and it's going fast. There's so much going on. So um, so this is episode zero. Please subscribe if you would like to hear us talk about this stuff. We're going to start uh, next week, October 6th, with episode one. I'm looking forward to that. We're going to build our our little document and fill it full of interesting things to talk about. If uh, our test show is any indication, we will have a full to bursting document we won't even be able to get to it all um because there's so much going on um there's just so much speaking of which we did do a test show for this podcast we did it a month ago a little more than a month ago and it was good and we liked it and uh then uh, julia had a vacation planned and we, we we decided we were gonna get this up and running in october and so uh, for the rest of this thing that you're listening to, episode zero, uh, we're going to play our test episode, which is basically a real episode. It's just out of time by five or six weeks. Um, and so the news, the immediate news is not quite current, but I still think it's a, a pretty good sense of, of where we're going with the show. So uh, when we wrap up here, you can give that a listen. Anything else before we turn off episode zero and get ready for episode one next week? No, I think I'm just so excited that we are going to go into episode one right after Squid Game. This crazy show becomes the number one global sensation. And I feel like I'm going to have a lot to say about that, Jason. Okay, I know nothing about this. I I know completely zero about it. So uh, you can educate me about Squid Game between now and episode one, I suppose. Um all right, uh, here, it, here it comes then. Here we were going to play for the rest of episode zero, uh, a real episode zero, our test episode from last 
month. And hopefully we'll see you all October 6th for episode one of Downstream. Until then, uh, bye, Julia. Bye, Jason. Welcome to Downstream, where we discuss the latest developments in the world of streaming media. I am Jason Snell, and I am joined by Julia Alexander of Parrot Analytics. Hi, Julia. How are you doing? Good. Jason, how are you doing? Uh, not bad. Not bad. I, I'm living the cord cutting life, which is new for me. <laughs> I as, as a person who... I didn't even grow up with cable TV. We only had antenna TV. So I think maybe that made me grab hold of the cable like that much harder. It was harder to let go. But I... I let go, <laughs> finally, <laughs> and I'm living the life of uh, finding out that uh, most of the over-the-top apps for the Apple TV are kind of not very good, but, you know, mm, they're okay. Yeah. They're okay. They're not TiVo. I wish that's what, uh, you know, somebody should buy TiVo just for uh, their interface and turn it into an app or something. I guess they've got their own streamer box, which I was not interested in in using at all, but I'll miss that little TiVo remote and stuff, but <laughs> otherwise I'm just, I'm gone. I'm just all Apple TV now all the time. Are you on the new Apple TV remote at least? Do you have physical yeah. buttons? Nice. Yeah, that's actually one of my problems. I'm using Fubo TV as my over-the-top service, um, yeah. mostly because it's a sports-focused thing, and most of what I need on 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 regular old TV is sports stuff, so it's a good yeah. fit. But uh, they haven't updated their app for the like fancy new Apple TV remote, which is too bad because like the remote is now way better, but their app is still living in the past of the Apple's old bad Siri remote, so... You know, I live yeah. in hope. They'll they'll probably update it eventually. <laughs> I've got the Google Chromecast with TV and that little dongle and that remote are just such a great combination. The and the interface is great. I have like virtually no complaints about it. And it, cuz I was coming off Roku too and Roku I just cannot use anymore. So the the Google Chromecast with TV for me has been That's pretty nice. solid. I have yeah. I've not used Chromecast in a long time. In my house, I have Apple TV, I have a Roku, and mm-hmm. I have a, an Amazon Fire TV. Um, right. And so I I get to keep an eye on those and how different apps are implemented in different places, uh, which is sort of what this podcast is about, right? It's this technology and entertainment all kind of fusing together. And mm-hmm. we are going to have opinions about apps. Oh, yes, we are. But uh, I don't have a Chromecast. I should probably get one so I can put that in the mix too and see what's going on with that. And it's, you know, the, the beauty of all of these things is once you're once you press play, generally they play <laughs> and then you're yeah. just watching TV and it's okay or a movie. It's the when you're trying to find something, it's uh, maybe not so good. <laughs> yeah, then it just becomes a matter of keeping up with who's fighting with who. You want to watch HBO Max on Roku up until six months ago, not ha- not happening. Yeah. So yeah, that's the fun new thing with the uh, over the top is who has what. Right, and Apple, like it's funny, Apple built their TV app with the idea that they were going to in- provide that sort of like top level integration, and I gotta say. For the services where Apple has metadata about what is available, it does a pretty great job. Having switched to an app instead of watching yes. live TV on a TiVo, now uh, when I go to the sports tab, for example, on Apple's TV app, it is a perfect encapsulation of what is currently on in sports. It's kind of amazing. It, previously, it wasn't, right? Pre- previously, it was sort of like, this is on Paramount Plus and this is on Peacock and I don't know anything about television. But now with the Fubo TV integration that I brought on, brought on by subscribing to that, now it knows what's on like live TV TV. And uh, it's kind of brilliant. Of course, Netflix refuses to provide them with any metadata. And so... Y- it's kind of a flop in that you can search for 
almost everything, <laughs> but not quite everything because Netflix isn't there. It's so frustrating. <laughs> yeah, I feel like at least Apple TV is light years ahead of where it was five, six years ago. I feel like they have figured out not exactly what they need to be or what they want to be, but they're in a really good place, especially as a both actual streaming service provider with Apple TV Plus, and then also just an aggregator of just, you can come and get whatever you need via us. And if they give us metadata, we'll make it as simple as possible for you. I totally agree. I think they've, they've gotten a little bit of humility in terms of their TV strategy when they realized that they couldn't quite dictate terms to everybody. I hope the Netflix relationship somehow evolves because I think that that would give them a real nice... Uh, yes. nice interface for everything else. Cause that's the thing I still use just watch all the time to try to find where a movie is because I really want a comprehensive look. If people haven't used the just watch app or you can go to justwatch.com and it's by region. So you can pick your country. If you're not in the U S uh, friends in Canada who I say, let's watch this movie for a podcast and they, and they can use the Canada version of just watch. Cause it's somewhere totally different than it is in the U S and uh, but I still have to use that because I can't find any sort of like on box version that's reliable to really for me to believe that it's not available for on a service that I have to rent it and and just watch lets me do that. Yeah, I'm a massive fan of Just Watch and what that team is building. I also have friends who, for similar reasons, I have friends in Canada or in the UK or whatever it may be, and all, you know, friends in the States as well, who want to watch something and specifically don't want to sign up for anything else. And I have some yeah. pals who will, who will use VPNs and are just like, well, if this is on Netflix in the UK, <laughs> I will. I have a Netflix account. I will just make that work. Just don't tell anybody. Just don't, <laughs> just don't just tell anyone. Yeah, I, yeah. I have, I have a friend who used to watch. He, he's a fan of a team... Uh, an NFL team that is technically not in his TV market. It's a very confusing situation where he lives very close to where this team is, but the market has yeah. line has been drawn and you get this sort of like messed up, like his locals are the New York no locals instead of the Philadelphia locals. And yes. that was his strategy was that suddenly he was an international <laughs> viewer who could see all the NFL games, uh, which we're, we should talk about that at uh, some point down the road because uh, NFL Sunday Ticket, the DirecTV deal yes. is coming up, and and it feels very much like somebody's going to turn that into a a streaming uh, service deal instead. And an experiment for sure. I mean, both for the NFL and for whoever does it. I think that it, it, sports rights in general, as they come up over the next few oh, years, man. obviously the NHL just resigned, and the NHL went very heavy on in streaming. Um, I think it'll be fascinating to watch all those play out. The NFL being really the last one because the league being we want to be. On ABC, uh, ESPN, we want to be on ABC, we want to be on, uh, well, I guess, via Disney when they do their simulcast. We want to be on NBC, CBS. Um, so that will be fun to watch how the NFL plays right. things. Because right, we, we are exiting now the period where uh, live sports was a bulwark against cord cutting by cable companies. And now we're yes. turning into, and so they would spend more than it, the sports rights were worth in order to keep people on cable. And now the streamers are willing to spend more than the rights are worth. It's a good time to have sports rights, I guess, is what I'm saying. Because somebody's oh, yeah. going to pay you a lot of money for them. And it's absolutely fascinating. Just one example, I remember Amazon was carrying a, a football game or it was one of their Thursday nights that they were doing. We went to a bar to watch it and it was hilarious because Amazon kept buffering because it's over the internet. And I remember turning to a friend and saying, this is the issue that a lot of them are going to run into where they are now both supplier and distributor versus when it was cable, you were the supplier and then the distributors who are the, your telecom guys are going, yeah, no, no, we'll handle it. It'll be fine. We'll play it in the homes. And yeah. now it's like you guys have to figure out how to make sure that this doesn't buffer if you have 
50, 40, 30, 20 million people tuning in to watch it. I think this is why um, Disney bought BAM. Mm-hmm. Tech, the which used to be the Major League Baseball streaming thing, because streaming live, I mean, Netflix, as big as Netflix is, I feel like Netflix's of- official opinion about live content is no thank you. <laughs> like, yeah. just it's a lot of work to stream something live where all the, 100% of the demand basically happens in the moment um, instead of being able to defer it around the clock. Uh, everybody wants to watch it in the moment. And so you have to meet the peak demand. And that's a, that's a hard technical problem. For sure. And it's what and Netflix is aware of how hard technical problems can be because they are arguably the biggest uh, and best approach to content delivery networks and w- partnering with I- local ISPs around the world right. because they know that. They know they know there's so much Netflix traffic and they need to fulfill that for their customers. Well, okay, we have a lot to talk about and we've touched on yes. some of it. Um, I thought maybe we would start since you mentioned international shifting and we mentioned Just Watch and we don't know where anything is. Maybe we would start with this announcement that happened, which is a joint venture between two arch enemies, at least in the US, which is Comcast and uh, and CBS Viacom. Where they're going to, and this is so confusing because there is a Paramount Plus in a few places in Europe, and uh, a lot of content is on Sky TV already in Europe, and and this is only for twenty European territories with about ninety million homes, but it's a start of an a, a shared international strategy. Rather than going it alone, Comcast and Viacom CBS are going to come together, and they created something that they're calling Sky Showtime. Uh, and that's going to be their streaming service with a lot of the originals that come from the Viacom CBS side of the house that they haven't already sold elsewhere, of course. And uh, and then the material from like Peacock and other Comcast kind of content, in addition to, I don't know if Sky has some assets of its own in the in, in Europe, but Comcast owns Sky. So uh, what do you think about this? I mean, it, it, it struck me as being them saying, yeah, we can't take on the big guys uh, on our own. Let's let's try to work this problem together in Europe. Without question, that's exactly it. I I first have to point out that Sky Showtime is maybe my least favorite of the streaming names. Oh. Where it's Sky, it reminded me very much of when Bob Chapek, uh, who's the CEO of Disney, suddenly went, we're not going to do, call it Hulu International for many reasons, but one of them is that Star has a bigger international right. resonance with customers, which I, I agree with them, makes sense. And so the Sky portion of it, I was like, okay, this makes sense to me. You're in Europe. Sky's, Sky's a, a real brand in Europe. in Europe. Yeah, from Massive the days of being Europe. a satellite provider and being a kind of a weird combination satellite over the top kind of provider now. It's a known known brand. Totally. And so you then have this problem where you're like, okay, well, it's not can't just be called Sky because that's its own thing. can't be Sky Plus because that's what's a thing. So what you go with is Sky Showtime, yeah. which Our then partner, says to- CBS Viacom uh, or Viacom CBS, they they really want their uh, one of their brands in there somewhere. So yeah, we'll use Showtime. And, it, and that and that was the thing to me where Showtime is the network who, if you asked a lot of people what their favorite Showtime show was, I don't know if they could point to it, but I think if they said, "Hey, I really like the show Billions," you'd go, "That's a Showtime yeah. show." And they're De- like, oh. "Dexter, uh, I don't know, uh, yeah." And they don't have the brand recognition uh, as of HBO, even though Showtime makes great stuff. So I thought that was funny that they think the biggest resonance in Europe was Showtime, yeah. along with Sky. I mean, it's a it's. Paramount Plus, obviously, in the U.S., I think that was maybe a smart decision. Paramount gets out from under all these kind of corporate names, and it's yeah. sort of got some resonance. I My best guess is that the reason Showtime is the name they chose is because it's a generic word that means presentation of entertainment. And I almost think, like, if I didn't know what Showtime was, which is this sort of 
also ran to HBO, sorry, Showtime, in the U.S., and it was just a word, I'd be like, oh, Showtime, that's a nice word for a streaming service. And I think maybe that's what they're going for. It's just like, forget about what it means. It's just Showtime. It's Showtime. Yay! Exactly. And so they go, we're going to be in about, I, I can't remember the exact number. It's like 20 or 20, 20 yeah. to 25. 20, 20 uh, territories, 90 million homes. Cause it's, and it's not like the UK because, because there's already stuff going on there. And I think it's not Germany. It's like parts of Europe that are not covered by other strategies right now. Exactly. And so they go, and we're going to be in these 20 territories, 90 million homes, and we're going to combine our libraries, which are massive libraries. They're extremely in-demand libraries. Like, they make a lot of sense, and we're going to offer it as a a unique SVOD streaming service. It makes a lot of sense, I think, what they're trying to do. The two questions that I have, one, is the reason that they are not in certain territories, massive territories, including Germany, Italy, France, the UK. Part of that question for me is, Sky has a big deal with HBO and Warner Media is moving HBO Max into Europe and parts of it. And so all of a sudden it's this weird rights negotiation center, which is what we also saw with uh, Star and Hulu. Like the reason that Disney was like, we're going to launch Star, not call it Hulu. Part of the reason was Hulu's got a lot of third party content that they don't own the global rights to. And so if you're going to go international, you can't just say everything on Hulu will be available here. So Disney goes, Everything that we own will be available on Disney+. Plus. You've got your, your 20th century, your ABC stuff. And so this is, feels like them going, we also have a ton of content, which they do. We're going to put it in homes that do not currently have a Sky kind of HBO presence. And we're going to really be this SVOD opportunity. That's my first. But the second question is, there's not a lot of originals to bring in. Like if you think about Peacock, if you think about, and I mean new originals. If you go about Peacock, right. think about Paramount+, Plus, where the, the NBC has going on. Not a lot. Like it's like, yeah, there's some stuff there. The library is great. So I'm 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 excited well, to see what they do to bring people in. You mentioned Disney, and this is one of those cases where uh we're and we're gonna be talking about this a lot, especially when we talk about the international rollouts, where Disney, although they moved sort of slowly, Disney uh Disney's strategy has been built around content that they control worldwide, and it's been a worldwide rollout strategy, the same way that Apple actually has done it, where they're like, worldwide rollout, we want our content everywhere, that's it. And some of these other companies, and I feel like they have changed their strategy. They did realize all of a sudden that international rollouts were important, but their initial strategies were so US-focused, and now it's going to bite them. And, you know... CBS All Access being a great example, Les Moonves, when he was running CBS, boasted about the fact that he was able to fund uh, the new Star Trek show without spending any money on it because Netflix buying the rights to it for international uh, everywhere outside of North America funded the show. And then all the money they made building their streaming service in the U.S. was basically uh, just profit from uh from the money that netflix put in to have the show be made and you know maybe it wasn't 100 percent of the cost of producing it but it was most of it the problem is now they want that he's gone (laughs) they've got new people in charge they want to roll out in europe and they're like okay well we sold half of our star trek shows to netflix and the other half to amazon and we don't have an international strategy like netflix and amazon and apple and disney and so i guess no wonder they want to work together but like these two and HBO Max, they're the ones who are kind of stuck with this idea that we license, oh no, we licensed our content to someone else and now we don't control it. And so they can build a great product in North America, but it, you know, what are they going to do with the rest of the world? 
Right. I mean, that gets into this idea of what is NBC Universal and Viacom CBS's main strength. And their main strength is that they've got, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years of catalog. Their whole right. thing is we can license you these shows that people want. Um, and then you will build a bit audience. You'll bring that audience in. They're not necessarily great at being their both distributor and content provider. And I think what they're running into is this idea that, you know, Bob Backish, who's the CEO currently of Viacom CBS, talks about this a lot where he goes, we're going to license a ton of our content to Netflix or whoever. We're going to license part of it. We're going to get that interest from people who are coming into Amazon or whomever. And hopefully that brings them over to our platform. But that's not how consumer behavior works. That's not people don't go, oh, I've watched three seasons of this show and I'm going to finish it on Paramount Plus, which therefore means I have to open another app, subscribe to something else just to go in here. It doesn't make any sense. They're going to go, I watched three seasons of this. Maybe I'll wait for the fourth season of hit Netflix or something. But I'm going to go find something else to watch on this app I already have open and I'm subscribing to. And so I think what they're going to come into is this idea of we have to continue to license our content because we cannot give up that revenue stream right now. And they have way too much content arguably like they they can license it out but then to your exact point jason when they start to go international when they're going oh we want you to come over to us netflix and uh amazon and disney go we have a bunch of new shows that's the reason you're going to come also we have our library so you can hang around and watch this there's no new original from any from nbc universal or pair uh, or Viacom cbs that is going to bring that mass audience in. And then, to your exact point, is the library the full library? What have you licensed out elsewhere? And so right. the value proposition for customers is yet to be seen. I think a big part of that's going to be what the price is and what they actually can promote. So there's you've got this gold rush, which is everybody wants to be one of the ones left standing with a monthly recurring revenue from millions and millions of people paying for their streaming service because direct consumer revenue to an entertainment company is the best, right? Like, and, and Disney has, has said, like, this is what we're going to do. But the problem is they probably can't all make it work. And also, there's a lot of money to be made by selling your content to one of the other streamers, but you are then fundamentally kind of like undercutting yourself by doing that. But the money's good. So it will be interesting to see. We talked about it when when you were on Upgrade about the idea of, do you want to be a content arms dealer? Um, Like Sony is just, we'll sell you content. Or do you want to, can you split the difference? And if you do, how do you do that philosophically? Or do you ultimately say, you know, we'll do some joint ventures and we're going to back off of this because we make more money like I think that's the calculation is everybody wants to be one of the ones left standing at the end, but not everybody's going to be left standing at the end. And you don't want to turn your back on all that money that you could get by just licensing your stuff. And, you know, nobody I feel like nobody wants to fully commit to just being the content arms dealer, because what if we're one of the last ones left standing? But that may be a self-fulfilling prophecy if they're not willing. Like Disney committed. Disney's like, no, it's all in international streaming. Everything we do is for us. The end. But these other companies are kind of they don't really want to do that. Absolutely. And I think the bigger question that they are going to have to answer down the line is, are we making the revenue based on our investment that even justifies trying to be one of the distributors, but also you know having our own thing on top of being our content provider as well? And two, is that enough to actually maintain international streaming services, which is its own job on its own? Like right. the, the reason that Netflix and Amazon were always really impressive was that they had the tech background. They were like, we get the tech side of this. We're going to work on the content side, but we'll work with the best in Hollywood to try and do that. The entertainment guys coming in who have spent their entire careers working with distributors, which are AT&T and Comcast or whoever it is, who go like, yeah, no, no, we can handle 
this side of things. Like you've never had to think about it beyond the kind of deals that are being made for, for uh, carry deals. Now, all of a sudden they're going, okay, well, how do we ensure that buffering doesn't happen? How much are we putting on UI UX? And like, how are we ensuring that if AWS goes down, what does this mean for like all these things that are happening? They now have to answer in global countries. They have to answer all these other, and that's something they didn't have to do before. Right. That cost might be the difference between someone like Disney, someone like Warner, someone like Amazon, go and Netflix going like, no, we're fine. Like we'll continue. It's worth it for us. Or someone like NBC Universal and Viacom, CBS going the Sony route and going, we have a huge library. We don't want that. We will just right. license it to you at three at three times the cost. Or maybe we'll pick a few markets where we care enough to build our product, and in all the other markets, it's like. We're going to just sell it off to someone else's streaming service. And so if you're in, you know, you're in Germany, you might see it on uh, on this service. But in the U.S., it's on their owned and operated service because they can they've they've prioritized the U.S., but not Germany or however it works out. Exactly. Um, That's. That brings us to a topic that that I had on my list to talk about with you, which is this te- the tech side of it. So I think one of the things that we want to do in our conversations is really kind of we're mashing up tech and and entertainment because that's this whole story is that this stuff is all mashed up together. It's a new paradigm, but there are a lot of aspects. You mentioned the idea of having to support streaming in various markets. There's the whole idea of content delivery networks, and that's extra complexity and that uh, some of these com- companies like uh, Netflix have have spent that time in Apple and Amazon and Disney. I think those four have said, no, we're worldwide. But the other part of it is the software. And you wrote on Twitter uh, last week about HBO Max. And I think that's a good jumping off point, although I immediately thought of Paramount Plus mm-hmm. and Amazon um, and mm-hmm. there was actually a really nice piece in Paste Magazine recently that was basically like Amazon Prime Video's interface is terrible and you can't find yeah. anything, which is has been true and is totally true. And it's just like what struck me when I was talking about how bad the Paramount Plus app was and before it, the CBS All Access app is you've got these companies. They are spending billions of dollars on content. It's so important that they do these strategies for the future of their business. And then sometimes it seems like, and I think it's a corporate culture thing, the tech is an afterthought. And the problem with that is as as a tech-interested guy, it's not me saying tech's important because I care about it. It's because if your app doesn't work, it doesn't matter how good your content is. Because as you said earlier, they, they're used to just handing it off to the distribution partner, the cable company or whatever, and they just walk away with it and their job is done. And now, you know, direct to consumer means you actually have to care about all the way to the consumer. And some of these apps are just so bad. Yeah, they're... I have this generalization, and I don't know if it's fair, but it's how I truly feel, which is that I can't imagine anyone working on the worst of the apps actually enjoys watching television on their apps. Because if you sat down (laughs) as a fan of entertainment and opened up Prime Video, you worked on the Prime Video team, you would go, this is terrible. Mm -hmm. I can't use this. I think the big issue that I, in conversations I've had with people and what I've come to understand, in part, not it's not the full story, but in part... Is this idea that you've got these brilliant, brilliant um, uh, engineers and people working on the architecture team and UI UX designers who are so focused on building a version of Amazon or something somewhere else. And they come on, they're like, cool, now build this version of Prime Video. We're going to make this thing. We're going to make a streaming service. 
that doesn't work the same way. The, the, the behavior of shopping, the behavior of browsing on a retail app or whatever it may be, is 100% different from how people approach wanting to look browse through movies and TV shows, what they're searching for. And so I think when you look at Amazon Prime Video, people all of the time go, this is unusable, in the same way that Hulu gets that a lot, Paramount Plus, uh, HBO Max is a big one for me. Yeah, And it's just these things where it's like, I don't know if people who are designing these are actually sitting down and watching and trying to like watch stuff. Because it's the stuff that's being pointed out is not brain surgery. Not that it would take, I don't, I'm not a, an engineer. I have no idea how to fix stuff. Right. I'm not trying to claim to be. But it's like, how, why does the, why are the captions not doing this on each other? Why have to turn them on each episode if I'm binging something? So why is this happening? I have a theory, which is <laughs> that it's not the technical people and that the technical people know exactly how bad it is. I, my theory is that in these, in these entertainment companies, corporate structures, the tech has always been an afterthought. It's always yes. been like those guys who build our website or whatever. And that's not true at Amazon, but I think it's true at HBO, uh, you know, and Warner. And I think it's true at CBS Viacom that yeah. it's it's been an afterthought and that when they made the decision to go all in on streaming, they didn't properly fund or plan for the tech side of it, especially for the user interface side of it. And so I've got, and I've gotten feedback from some people who have like have worked in the past at some of these companies. And they, they have told me that that's basically the story that they're, they're so oriented around, you know, what's our content strategy and nobody is really paying attention or spending the money on the last mile in this case yes. being like the interface in front of them. So you've got people who know it's bad, but are not, equipped to make it better now amazon is a, di a different point because i feel like there's an amazon culture issue there which is like amazon thinks of itself like you said as a store and yes. that i think that culture permeates their app to its detriment but like in some of these cases like hbo hbo has said we should say um uh, that Warner Media has said they are working on a completely new app and i'm sure that paramount would would do exactly what um HBO Max has done, which is say, look, what we really did is we took an old app and retrofit it so that we could launch it. And now we're building a new version because obviously yeah. the Paramount Plus app is just the CBS All Access app, which wasn't yeah. that great. And now it's being asked to do more. And is it no wonder that it's bad? But still, it is mind boggling that as you wrote, HBO Max in some ways is the best streaming service, at least in terms of its originals and its library content. Without question. And yet it is so let down by its technology. And I think the reason that Warner Media and HBO Max is getting even the investment to your exact point, like it's not even just the leadership is either unaware or just not not paying attention. Warner Media, their executive suite, especially those working on HBO Max, all came from digital. They all, Kyler was at Hulu. Um, uh, Andy Forsell was at Otter. And before that, I, I think, I can't remember where he was. They were all on digital platforms. So their whole thing is we get it. Like we're aware <laughs> that how important this is. So we're going to just rehaul the app and we're going to work on this. At To your exact point, Jason, I think if you look at Paramount Plus, you look at Peacock, to an extent Disney Plus, to an extent Disney Plus, although they uh, Disney acquired Bamtech for this reason, they go, yeah, we don't care. Like you're going to log in and watch Star Wars. You're going to log yeah. in and watch NCIS. Like you're going to, but it's like, no, no, that's not how things work. If you think about people use cable, you turn on your TV and you're browsing and all you're doing is going down, but you're just browsing still. You're like, I don't know what's on. I might know that I want to watch the Yankees. I might know that I want to watch a certain show at 9 p.m. I might watch Grey's Anatomy. Mostly you're just browsing. But I think that to, to, to your exact point about culture, one of the stark differences if we look at how this is, and I'll preface it by saying there's a very good reason why certain call earnings calls from certain companies can't go this way. 
Netflix has Greg Peters come on, who's like their head of product, and he, he's on every earnings call, and he talks a lot about uh, A-B testing. And he's like, we are aware of choice paralysis, which is the thing on Netflix we've all experienced, where oh, yeah. you browse for 10 minutes, and then you just watch whatever you've been watching because you don't know. He's like, we're aware of this. We're aware of how our recommendation algorithm works. We're aware of how things are, like, we are testing daily. They're the only ones who talk about that. Or they're like, yeah, the tech side is what we were built on. We were a Silicon Valley company who got into entertainment. Um, versus, and because again, Warner Media was part of AT is part of AT and T, so they want to talk about uh, phone plans. You've got <laughs> Disney, who's got a parts business. They got to talk about that. You know, Vi- Comcast, same difference, right? Viacom, CBS doesn't, but they don't really get into that. They're talking about what their strategy is in terms of licensing and original play. I think that speaks to Netflix is can, is not necessarily astounding, but Netflix isn't terrible. Like I don't mind browsing Netflix. Like they've gotten much better over the years, and I think it's because they are hyper aware of how important the technology is to keeping people engaged and happy and, and signing up. And so, yeah, I think this is something they're all going to have to invest in. Because to your point, they might be aware of it. Like they might see a tweet and they're like, "Yeah, this sucks." Like you know, a big some some reporter, big reporter, or some other executive is talking about it. But they're like, we don't want to invest next. We want to invest in the next Game of Thrones. So that's where our money is going. People will come to it. But you have to be a little bit like Netflix. He's like, no, we're where we need both. It's it's a dove. We have to have the, it doesn't work unless both wings are operating. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And Netflix. Yeah, we can criticize Netflix, but I I, I know they're on it and they care. And you can criticize their decision making sometimes. Sometimes I feel like they're really just a victim of the fact that they're they're generating so much content that it's almost impossible to keep yeah. track of it but but they they are analyzing and thinking about how their user interfaces work at a level that very clearly um nobody else is and <laughs> amazon i think amazon actually has some skill in this area but the problem is amazon has not come to embrace the idea that you can't be a sales front and rental front and a streaming service simultaneously you can be both but you can't be them simultaneously and that's something that apple also had to grapple with but apple finally gave in and basically created the tv plus tab and said that's our service it's in that tab go there and that's where you'll find ted lasso he's he lives inside that tab and amazon i feel like they're like yeah but we really want you to rent a movie and it's like "Mm, but sometimes but not right now amazon not now and while you're here, have you considered buying dog food? Like oh, it's it's a thing yeah. where cultural. I, I think exactly. And I think the to your cultural to the point your point exactly about the cultural impact and the differences that we're seeing. You have Jeff Bezos, who now is former CEO of Amazon, right. but who basically looked at Prime Video as a way to be additive and supplementary to Prime. His whole thing was we're going to drive Prime subscribers. We're going to drive the retail side of things. So if Prime Video comes in as an additive supplementary part of of Amazon. There's less focus on that than, you know, Amazon.com goes down and it's like all of a sudden, like this is our big thing. And so I think there's a question about how much investment do you give Prime Video on the, and not just again on like we're going to buy MGM for $9 billion. How much are you putting on, hey, if you've got people coming into Amazon Prime Video specifically, are you making their their experience enjoyable? Yeah, telling them that we threw a bunch of shows and movies in the bundle is not, does not have value if you can't find them. Right. And and that it is not part of the additive prime experience if people don't feel that it actually has that value. And as it, somebody who has prime, I do not feel unless there's a first run show, there's an original that I am tracking that I'm very interested in, in that's on Amazon. I am not paying attention to prime video at all, which is it, it's dumb because there's a lot 
of stuff there, but they actually have to care about it. And, you know, if you're going to spend a billion dollars on Lord of the Rings, you could probably put some more effort into your front end interface, I guess is what I would say. I thought (laughs) I, one would assume I, I, uh, I thought there was a really interesting reply to the paste story on Twitter and a bunch of people just going like, yes, I hate Amazon prime video, which is, uh, if anyone wants an experiment and they're on Twitter, just tweet how much you hate Amazon Prime Video and watch the engagement kind of come in. It's it's like a thing that drives people insane because they they know it. But it was funny because there was a lot of replies going, you think Prime Video is bad, try Amazon Music. You think Amazon Music and Prime Video are bad, trying this. And all these supplementary additive services that they think are are keeping the ecosystem alive and are crucial to the bundle, they're not actually adding any value to people's lives outside of a new show or movie that people will open up to go to and because they have amazon prime they're like well i am not it's i'm not canceling prime video so it's here prime video is on its own people would not i imagine would not subscribe to it as much because it's just a horrible experience and so i think the best thing amazon did with twitch was they let twitch kind of do its own thing it was like you guys are on your your team seems to be understanding what's going on we kind of trust this the twitch experience has not changed much but Prime Video and Music, it's like, you guys, to your exact point, you're putting a billion dollars into Lord of the Rings. You, you obviously want this to be part of your, your uh, ecosystem. You got to make people actually want to use the product, not feel like they are forced to use it because of one show they want to watch. So one other thing I wanted to talk to you about today is one of my favorite topics, but you brought it up uh, on your Twitter feed this last week and I, I sprung. I was like, oh, I got to talk to Julia about this. And it's... Binge drop versus the weekly drop. Uh, obviously, Netflix said binge drop is the way to go. I think in part self-serving because they only want to really market a show once and then they want to walk away because they got 10 other shows to market. But you mentioned The White Lotus, um, yes. Mike White's show on HBO, and how with its weekly release, it really was able to build word of mouth so that people became more interested in it as time went along and they could they could catch up. But it was a, you know, whatever, two-month kind of build of people talking about The White Lotus. Uh, and it just aired its its last episode of its first season. Um, and trying to compare that to what would have happened if The White Lotus had just dropped in a blob uh, in, the, you know, in early July. And then they just walked away. Um, there are two sides to this argument, but I think it's really interesting yes. to observe something. When you see something catch fire word of mouth. Um, it does point out that that is something that's lost if all you ever do is binge drop a show. Yes, absolutely. So our so I work for a company called Paranalytics. We specifically look at demand and what that demand translates to in terms of acquisition and retention for subscribers. So companies like Netflix are very much like we want to show it's in demand. If you're HBO, you ask me like White Lotus. First two weeks, first two episodes, not much. From the third to sixth episode, it skyrockets to the point that by the time the sixth episode dropped, it was not only just one of the most kind of in-demand shows of that week, it was one of the most in-demand shows on HBO Max as a whole, which includes Game of Thrones and includes Rick and Morty. Like, there's massive, massive shows that The White Lotus, which is a relatively, you know, not a a franchise show, it's a new show. Mike White is well-known by television critics and fans of shows like Enlightened. 
but it's not like he is a uh, he's not the Duffer Brothers who did Stranger Things, who are just kind of like they have this this fandom no, his, around them. His the stuff that he makes generally is a very niche appeal kind of stuff. I mean, yes. more people know him because he was on Survivor and The Amazing Race than know yes. him from or or School of Rock. Maybe they know that he wrote School of Rock, but uh, mm-hmm. and is in it. But his most of his stuff is kind of niche content that is not you know, broad crowd pleasing kind of stuff. Certainly not like what happened with white Lotus. Yeah. And so the question with white Lotus then became, okay, well why after the second episode to into the third did it skyrocket? And it's like, there was no major death in that episode. There was no major event that was like, Oh, suddenly everyone is seeing this on TikTok or whatever. Like it, it's nothing happened except that vulture and Twitter and all the other blogs were just talking about it. And it just became a rolling thing. And all of a sudden people were like, I got to watch this thing on HBO Max. It starts being recommended at the top of your page. And so you, you watch it. And yeah, we saw that that build. And by the time that its finale aired, it was extremely in demand. Now, had that show dropped all at once with the limited marketing that HBO really gave it, because it didn't have that much marketing, that show probably would have picked up an audience for somewhat, but not what it was. It, it doesn't have that major cliffhanger it doesn't have that major whatever to drive people to go watch us you know it's not bizarre enough to be one of the shows that all of a sudden is on um tiktok or reddit because people like have you you have to watch the show it's insane it would it would have found its community but it wouldn't have been what it was and i think it needed that six-week build there are shows that benefit from binge there are shows where it's like i will watch all this at once because the first or second episode uh or third episode might not get me and i'm just not going to go back to it um, I think a great example that I was talking I was talking about earlier with a friend is Dr. Death on Peacock, which is a great show. First three, four episodes are kind of hard for me to get into, but I binged it because I was sick one day, and it was a great show. By the four, by the end of the fourth, fifth episode, I was extremely into this. Succession was like that almost, where Succession, you know, a lot of people who I talked to were like, I wasn't into Succession until episode five, the first season. Five hours of investment from someone on a weekly basis is a lot. Like yeah. it's or like over the course of five weeks is a, is a lot. Um, you know, and so I think Ted Sarandos looked at Succession and he was like, had this show been available to binge, would it have been as successful? He's like, and I think it would have because people would have been able to watch it all in one setting. Um, so I think there's a convert, there's a, there's a time where binge works really well. And I think binge allows people to discover a show afterwards, but I think weekly in terms of generating hype and generating that kind of ongoing conversation and driving people to your platform every week is necessary. Yeah. And I think there are some shows that are like, um, I don't know, your 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 reality doc kind of shows where it's just, you know, people looking for houses or people trying to fix furniture or whatever it is where, you know, there's no weekly thread there. Just d- dump it in a binge on a Saturday yes. afternoon. You're going to be like, I want to watch people tearing apart houses. And that's great. Or bacon or bacon cakes. Although, yeah. although Great British Bake Off is a reality show with an elimination thing. And I think a weekly rollout actually does benefit those kinds of shows because... How how else can you do it? Uh, you know, you need to have that that cliffhanger kind of thing. I will I will my counter argument because I'm a big fan of the weekly release is once yes. it's released, it's a binge drop, right? Like yes. if you if you don't if you don't watch it in the first eight weeks or whatever, you're going to binge it later. And if it's something that's going to be repeatable, if it's coming back for a second or third season, then yes. you can get people into it with the binge, and then they can they can watch it week by week if they want to live and die by it week by week. It's just, do you think? It seems like almost everybody is embracing the week by week release in part because nobody other than Netflix has the volume of releases right. to just cast off whole series of shows on a Friday and then move on to the next thing. Um, 
But do you think in the long run that we're going to see a mixture of these formats or is almost everybody going to go to weekly? Would Netflix, I know that Netflix does it with some of their stuff where they're picking up from international weekly releases where they're releasing weekly, but like for their stuff, they don't, they don't do that. Do you think they would ever change or, or is it going to be more of a cultural thing of like, well, we do a weekly release. We do a binge and they they just fight it out. I think the I think the biggest part of that question is whether or not the show is tied to a cable or broadcast schedule. Because if it's tied, so Light Lotus was weekly in part because it was HBO. It's HBO. It was, so you're like, we have to do it weekly. This is just how we operate. Um, same with kind of broadcast things that are happening. Um, but you look at Apple said, TV and Disney Plus, like The Mandalorian released weekly. No, and- totally. I think I think I think what I would love to see happen, I think we'll probably move more towards that, is the three episode drop and then weekly. Like here's three episodes, you get a taste, you're kinda hooked, and then you're gonna get weekly. I think with Disney, so the and again the advantage the the, the, the big advantage to weekly is if it's an eight episode show or ten episode show, that's eight to ten weeks of guaranteed uh, engagement and subscription. Yep. And so you don't worry about, like, with Netflix, if you watch a show, you watch all in one day, you can cancel it that day. You're like, cool, I signed up, watched it, I'm done with it. Uh, and I don't want to deal with this anymore. Disney Plus, HBO Max, and all of them go, well, we're going to have at least two to two and a half months, three months of subscription coming in, which is nice. And then we're going to overlap our weekly to keep people entertained. I also think it's, you have to look at, at least in my opinion, you have to look at the investment in those shows. If you're spending 130 you know, million plus on Falcon Winter Soldier, Mandalorian, you don't want to just rush out and binge because you need people to come into weekly. You need them to return and, and really build that up. And, and you want to be a cultural conversation every single week because you want Star Wars. And, and it's a funny thing to say, but you want Star Wars and Marvel to remain at the type of conversation. And so I think what we'll end up seeing is a lot of them go with the hybrid, the three-week, which is how Ted Lasso's first season came right. out. It was three-week and then weekly. And then Apple realized it had a pretty big hit on its hand. They said, we have this now. We can draw it out weekly. <laughs> uh, and I think that's where they'll, we'll see a lot of them go, where they know if they've got a pretty big hit it's outside of Netflix. They're going to go, yeah, we'll do weekly. We think it's going to be, it'll be good. People will come in, like it's guaranteed. Otherwise, if it's a new thing they want to test, I think they go three episodes, Make sure that audience is there. You know, the boys did that. And then we go weekly. Um, and then I think, again, if it's tied to cable still, they can't. Right. We can't touch it. Then, then they have to do it that way. And and do you think Netflix will toy with this idea? Or are they just too committed to doing weekly drops of their originals? They, or I mean, I mean, all binge drops of their originals, not yes. weekly. <laughs> um, it's so funny. This con- if I had, If you had asked that question, you know three years ago. I think Netflix was a lot more headstrong. Maybe the word is stubborn about how they were approaching stuff. They kind of knew what they were and what they weren't. And then, you know, so in 2013 is a great example. 2014, Ted Sarandos, who's now the co-CEO, then head of content, was like, we'll never do reality programming. It just doesn't make sense on Netflix. Now, fast forward to now, it's like a huge majority of, of their of their service. What they love to do, it brings in people and it's cheaper. And so they're doing that. I think if you asked them if they would have ever done weekly in 2013, they would have said no. And now they've got weekly coming in from international shows. And they're trying other stuff. I think Netflix is much more open to experimentation than a lot of the other ones. And I think that's a benefit for them where they get to go, you know what, let's try it. Um, I think they would experiment with weekly releases of their big biggest shows, especially because they want that kind of guaranteed thing coming in um, go in the next couple of years. 
that I think that's much more likely to happen than them experimenting with advertising in the next you know, five, six years. And maybe it'll be event driven. I was thinking about um, the idea that what if you a very particular property and I don't know what it is where they feel like it's the perfect kind of thing for them to make it a huge deal that, you know, every Friday for five weeks, this enormous event is going to happen and everybody's going to be talking about it. Like, let's do that instead of dropping all five of them on one day because yes. that gives us kind of a marketing opportunity. I don't think they can afford to market, you know, to do a weekly release of all of the stuff that they do. I mean, it's just, there's there's too much. There really is too much. But I could see them doing it with some super high profile thing yeah. that has the perfect kind of content to yeah. be a buzzworthy thing that's going to build and then everybody's going to be there the moment that the the last episode drops to talk about what happened. Well, let's say of something like Stranger Things, right? Let's say Stranger Things runs about in this fourth season, 25 million an episode. Like, let's say they want to do that, plus all the extra stuff that comes with it, plus the marketing you're going to do. Stranger Things has eight episodes, nine episodes. All of a sudden, that show gets maybe two weeks of people talking about it because people watch it. First week comes out. They give it a week for spoiler etiquette. Then they're all in it the next week. Then they're moving on. Then And especially now, they're like moving on to Hawkeye and they're moving on to uh, whatever's happening on HBO Max. Like there's other things for them to move on to in Star Wars. And so if you're Netflix, this huge thing that you've invested money into, and I know because of the way that they look at their revenue, it, it's fine because people come back to Stranger Things, they rediscover it, like they'll always be watching it. You still want that buzz for as long as you can yeah. and get people in. And so I think, I don't think they'll experiment with Weekly on Stranger Things, but I do think a show like The Witcher, a show where they're like, this is going to be a big deal. We're investing so much into it. We want people to talk about it. I think, yeah, I think they'll absolutely experiment with Weekly over the next few years. All right. Well, as somebody who likes to talk about and write about um, shows, I appreciate being able to write about them week by week. I know that's entirely self-serving, but <laughs> even just as a viewer, I really like being able to talk to people about it. When when a show, there's nothing worse for me than not knowing whether I can engage with somebody about a show because I don't know if they've not seen it, seen some of it. It's yeah. like, where are you in it? Can we even talk about it? Because I'm ahead of you or you're ahead of me. It's so frustrating. And I do really enjoy having those conversations of like, did you see what happened on Loki last week, right? Or or yesterday. Yes. Um, plus, I like, I like, I mean, a bunch of the, the hardest core fans, like the minute the show drops, they watch it. Oh, and, yeah. And that's like, it, it, let's say Stranger Things, for an example. What's the last episode of Stranger Things? What's their big finale? And are you going to require everybody to watch eight hours before they can talk about the finale? Because you're going to ruin it for a lot of people. You're going to spoil it. And you've lost an opportunity to make that big. Like, do you hold that episode back and call it a movie or a special or something and drop it on its own? Because you you kind of want, I, I don't know. I, I would think that in the end, you want the buzz from something like yeah. that. You, you want people talking. Absolutely. And if you think about it, I'm sure, I don't know if you have this in your life, so I can only speak from anecdotally. I know myself and a lot of other friends in my life will watch a Netflix show that they really want to watch weekly. And they'll do it themselves. Like It's available to them in full, but they will go, no, you know what? We'll watch it together. Every week, you have to, like this episode you have to watch so we can talk about it. And we did that with Stranger Things last, well, God, when that came out two years ago, however long it's been, it was season three. And it's like, that was so much more fun than all of us being like, where are you at? Like, have you gone? And yep. then also, because the episodes blend together, you're like, have you gotten to this part? And they're like, no, that's an episode four. And I was like, oh, you know what? I'm, so I, It all blends. And sometimes, like, I can't. like a show like Loki um, and a show like WandaVision, 
Those are yeah. two really good examples. But actually, Mandalorian, a lot of the Disney Plus shows are like this. They're very much the episode where this happens. They are, they're not, some shows really do blur together, but other shows, like every episode has its own tone and its own yes. thing that happens. And you don't want to lose that because you want to be like, oh, this is the episode where they did X. And, and you don't want to fuzz that out. You want to be able to dwell on it. Back when I was doing the TV Talk Machine podcast with Tim Goodman, I called this the slow binge, uh, which would, sometimes it would be like one a day or one every other day. But I really love, I love taking it incrementally and not just kind of like blasting through it and, and, and like programming my own schedule where I'm watching yes. three or four shows simultaneously, but just giving them time to breathe so I can think about yes. them. That's it's exactly it. I, I find myself wanting to do that even if I'm given the option to do everything. And I think, or do everything at once, I should say, I think part of that too, like I don't know if it's the same for you, Jason, is there's so much, like there's uh, yeah. so much happening that I love being able to say, Friday morning, I wake up and I get to start my day every Friday with Ted Lasso. It's like my, I look forward to it every week. And I'm like, this is like, I had to do this thing that's great. And like, I, I can watch a movie later tonight. With the binge stuff, if it's a high profile show that I know I want to be able to use Twitter on the weekend because I am addicted. I know if I don't watch it all of Friday, it's like, okay. Like by Sunday, it's like things are out there and that's not fun. And so it's, you know, what you start, you start limiting yourself on Twitter. You start limiting yourself on wherever you're going to go. You start with your friend groups. Like it becomes this thing where it's like, well, who has taught, who's seen it? Should we do a new group chat with who's seen it? Like (laughs) it's a whole thing. And versus if it's all weekly, like to your point, we all get to experience the WandaVision finale or the Loki finale. We all get to experience that in time, at least around the same time with each other. Um, and that's really special. And I think that's what I think that's why we're seeing this go back to weekly for all the things that have changed over the last 10, 15 years in terms of the streaming revolution moment. And it really is a revolutionary moment in media and entertainment. The human behavior aspect is still very much, you know, 1980s. We still want to watch the thing with uh, at one, you know, with each other around the same time, even if it's not at 8 p.m. exactly on a Thursday. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. That's one of those things that maybe we we realized we didn't have to do it that way. So early streaming experiments sort of cast it out and everybody realized, oh, wait, maybe we didn't have to do it that way, but it's actually kind of good to do it that way. Maybe. All right. Well, it's been great talking to you about all this stuff. There's so much, so So much much. to do, (laughs) uh, so much to talk about that. That's at least what we could manage in this session. So thank you, Julia. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. (laughs) 